Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Today is a big day for me because I'm interviewing Matthew Sturbins, the founder and CEO of Forefront Skis. And prior to founding Forefront, Matthew worked with me on my ski clothing company that I owned many years ago. He then went on to start Forefront, and the rest is history. Matthew was a mogul skier raised in Wisconsin. After graduating from the University of Minnesota, he moved to Lake Tahoe in 2000 to become a professional downhill skier in the discipline of slope style. Through his competitive accomplishments, including the X Games, Matt garnered a reputation for vision and leadership within the industry and started the rider-owned ski company Forefront out of the small ski town of Truckee, California. Thirteen years later, Forefront Skis is a registered Utah company operating in retail, wholesale, distribution, and manufacturing. Matt and his company have won many awards for their products, including a gold in Sochi at the 2014 Winter Games in the Men's Half Pipe. And he's recently been recognized in Utah Business Magazine in their Top 40 Under 40 issue, as well as Goldman Sachs 10K Small Business Alumni. For more information about Matt and Forefront, visit Forefront.com. That's the numeral 4 frnt.com check out his products his skis bindings and gear and some really cool videos matt thanks for taking the time i'm stoked that you're here and welcome to the product launch rebel podcast thank you for having me john happy to be here excellent so matt within this podcast there are three segments the first is called give me the basics which helps set the context about your current company for our listeners The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. And the final part is the Let's Get Personal component, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Matt, it's time for some questions. What do you think? Should we go? Let's go for it. Give me the basics. So Matt, so you've done an amazing job with your company, especially due to the fact that you entered the industry, the ski industry, that was not growing. It was plump full of competition or kids in the young ski market and your potential customers were really preoccupied with digital entertainment and all sorts of other leisure options instead of going outside and going to ski for that matter. So why did you see a new ski brand as a business opportunity? Well, to be honest, John, until you said that, I didn't really know that that was the actual landscape at the time. Sure. Um, 
Not I guess, knowing uh, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I guess you could say I, I, I lent on the ignorance side of that. And what motivated me to uh, engage in starting Forefront was really out of the spirit of, par- of, of participation. Um, being a professional skier, networking with international sponsors who had a long history rooted in other disciplines besides the which the one I was focused on really created a lot of disconnect. And, you know, one thing I did realize was just the limited window of opportunity that I had as an athlete. And so not having like a wholehearted support behind me competing on their skis, I felt like I could do more with the opportunity. And I really didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't even really know anything about making skis. I just knew that a lot of the friends that I was competing with, my peers, people that I was associated with on a daily basis, they they knew that skiing was due for a revolution. And as a passionate, you know, action sport participant myself in other disciplines, I saw that skiing was really lacking the identity that really nurtured the interest of the youth segment of our sport. And so I decided to kind of band together um, a network of friends and, and together we built up the brand forefront and with the opportunity to bring those who were closest to me into the fold of the company, I knew so long as we uh, continue to ski that we would be creating decisions that would help uh, progress the industry and ultimately a- attract youth participants back to the sport. And how many products did you start out with in those early days? It took us like a year to figure out if we could even make a ski. That was really where all the focus was in the first year because we had no experience doing it. And then once we finally came to a factory that was capable of producing the skis to our specification, we introduced three different lengths under one model of skis called the MSP, which was named after me. And at the time, there was three people within the company. And uh, that was really our first commercial rollout. And, you know, the networking with shops to resell that product for us was was total tongue in cheek, you know, just calling them up on my lunch breaks uh, between Pound and Nails in the summer in Tahoe, um, where I was able to raise enough money to keep some of the startup capital flowing and uh, just asking them, hey, like, believe in me and, and, and this idea and this concept and these products, because this is the future of skiing. Uh, and uh, a lot of those dealers are still with us to this day. How did you come up with the name? So I wanted a, you know, I, I wanted a company that would be uh, recognizable as also a brand. I didn't just want to pick a, a, just a word and then, you know, spend the time and energy and and uh, and useless communication trying to define what this word meant. I thought the name Forefront was really appropriate because when looking through the archives of ski directories, everything is chronal- is alphabetically ordered. And numerically, I would always be recognized as the first brand in the directory if I could find a way to use a number to lead off the brand. So four obviously became kind of a pivotal mark in the name. And then actually, the initial name was Forecast. And that was something that kind of got thrown around as a, a concept of ever-changing and unpredictable and forecast was something that was just a little soft, in my opinion, to really define like the general approach to being a writer-owned company. And uh, to be honest, a friend of mine, when I was going through the um, story of forecast and my kind of uncertainty of it, blurted out forefront and the clouds cleared and the sun came shining through the window at that very moment. And I was like, you bet, man, that's it. And it just fit for so many reasons. And I love seeing how the word gets used in a literal context in politics. 
because they always redefine the, the, the nature of the word as appropriate for what we do, you know, using the athletes and letting them pioneer and drive ski development. And that keeps us forever relevant. So eventually dropping the O out of forefront kind of gave it a, a logo in itself of just the spelling. And that proved to be strategically a good play as well down the road when looking at protecting the trademark rights of our brand name. So trademarks didn't really come up until oh, about three or four years ago did I really start to realize the importance of trademarks. And having a name that's spelled uniquely really helps solve a lot of the problems of, of nurturing a true identity within global trade. What was unique about Forefront when you started it? I think you talked a little bit about that because of that new market coming up, but tell me more. Yeah, Forefront, you know, we really modeled it around the athletes. So we pioneered this rider own model. Skiing up to then was on a majority based family owned. There was a lot of, and this still remains to be a lot of family owned ski brands in Europe. But um, in America, it was all just distributors. Uh, there was a couple of US ski brands, but um, none of them had individual identities. They were bought and sold and just kind of held by some type of private equity firm or whoever. And for us, we really wanted to create a transparent message with the skiers who chose to purchase our products, that they were just as much a part of the company as anybody working there or anybody skiing on the brand for endorsement purposes. Um, our customers became the fabric of who we are as a brand and and the rider own nature really kind of maximize the the uh, transparency into how we were designing products and the type of messages we were looking to communicate. So did that uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, to other free skiers at the time? Was that, did it work? Or did you have to start to emphasize some other attributes or features? Uh, it did initially, you know, because of how unique of an approach that was when uh, you know, we presented the, the products to the retailers, you know, this rider own model was a complete novelty. So they were able to rely on that to position the brand for its unique nature against all the other traditional ski companies they already carried products of. So initially it was like check out Forefront, their rider own company. And then once that story kind of became known, then it became check out Forefront and these different shapes of these different athletes. And then their, those athletes' stories became the sales pitch of selling those skis. And so the story just started to kind of deepen as the product range became more and more complete. Yeah. And I think our listeners are aspiring entrepreneurs that perhaps have not done anything like this before. So I sort of want to get into the challenges of selling to two different audiences. On the one hand, you're selling to the actual younger skier that's into the movement and you have to motivate them and engage them. But on the other hand, you have to sell to retailers as well. So I'm curious on a scale of one to 10, to what extent was that message that you had motivating to your target end user skier versus one out of 10 compared to the retailer buyer as a general rule across the board? Yeah, I think we were 8 out of 10 to the user, and I think we were 2 out of 10 to the retailer. Yeah. You know, it was a we were fully marketing to the consumer, and we hadn't yet, we hadn't been around long enough to leverage the organic interest of consumers seeking out to buy our products. So while at the same time we were, we were developing popularity, we were also trying to develop market share. And had we felt that our idea was of the novelty nature that we would be the only people in this space for some time and we could cultivate the popularity and eventually transition to focusing on distribution second, we probably would have, but we felt like what we were doing was A, extremely authentic, 
and B, that once the story got out that we were able to scrounge up the ability to produce skis in America at that time with some very basic design principles that really positioned us competitively against the nature of all these conglomerates, that people were going to be quickly jumping on the bandwagon to do the same. So, you know, we, we fast-tracked the development of the company's infrastructure. And in some cases, it toppled on itself. And in other cases, it held strong through the storm. It just, there was really no rhyme or reason to why that was successful. But in the, in the early days, our focus was purely on the end user. And we just did everything we could to use end users' reviews and requests to their local shops to leverage market share in those areas. And so when somebody was hyped on our product, we were like, please call your dealer and tell them that you want to buy it from them. And so we were right there at the cusp of the e-com market kind of exploding. Backcountry.com was just in its early phase. And so there really wasn't a, a large online marketplace for ski sales at the time. So we were really focused on getting into the specialty retail audience. And that proved to be a, a much uh, more difficult venture than drawing consumer interest to buy a product. That's for sure. And now how many products do you have? You said you started with that one model, but now what is the scope of your product line? You know, now we're on the other end of the spectrum where we're trying to limit the amount of SKUs we have. Um, That's for sure. <laughs> you get to a point, you know, we just, we're turning 15 years now. If you could explain that to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners too, because if you expand too broadly, right, you can find yourself piled up with inventory and, and expending a lot of energy and resources on things that may or may not make it. So explain kind of that challenge as an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, you know, initially we went as far as designing unique graphics for every size of every model ski so that when you were on the hill, the perception was that Forefront had a lot of different models already and that there was a ski for you. You just had to find out which one. But in actuality, they were just different graphics that we were just screen printing on the same ski just so that it made the range look broader. And uh, as funny as that is, like nowadays we We've actually started to like consolidate the amount of product that we have in market so that, yeah, we can focus on the things that we are truly doing an outstanding job with and eliminate some of the distractions. You know, at like 15 years in, we're really starting to value the 80-20 rule. Sure. And I love the 80-20 rule. It's big. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's the reality of the of the age of the company. You know, at this point, 20 percent of our efforts have got us to here. And we need to eliminate 80% of the distraction if we want to stay relevant for the next 15. And we want to continue to offer a, a complete portfolio product that can uh, communicate to the everyday skier coast to coast. But at the same time, we're just simply not as effective in competing for certain market share than we would have hoped to be. And we've just had to come to realization with that and shifted our focus towards the communication channels that we can truly um, succeed in. Now, let me ask you this. This is more in the next section, but now I've always perceived you to be an artist at your core that has a set of really good business skills and focus to get a business off the ground, such as what you've done. But if, if you're an artist at heart, and I think you are, kind of looking at the business now as you're older and looking at a smart way to sort of consolidate and that use the 80-20 rule, is that difficult for a guy like you to do when you see the world as your canvas? 
It is. Um, I, I appreciate you recognizing my personality attributes. I, I think you're pretty. Not many people know that of me. I think that that says a lot for our history together. But uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the art school at the University of Minnesota. You know, nurturing my craft, and I had a lot of just. Um, I, I had a lot of aspiration to to do to to do things in a very artistic way um, that were related to sports, and. Branding the company and developing a lot of the new collection uh, is probably what I find to be the most rewarding component of, of my role within Forefront. However, as we look outwards and say fiscal stability reigns supreme, and unfortunately that may mean dumbing down some of the colorways that would otherwise be really um, expressive because we're trying to reach a particular audience that has a disposable income for a certain class of product that they don't necessarily need to be of conflicting color interest with the rest of their equipment. It's sometimes a little bit disheartening. Like we want to do really loud and expressive things with our products, but we have to be mindful of the audience and what will be most compelling. Like you want to create something that kind of pushes the edge a bit, but also you need to have something that fits right in the middle. And I think that's where as a businessman with a, a deeply rooted interest in art, I come in conflict with often. And yeah, I'm, you know, I started the company when I was 23 and I'm 38 now. And with a little boy at home and a family and everything that sometimes like what makes the most financial sense for the business becomes the main focus. And that often comes at the expense of some of the more expressive ideas we have. But I know that so long as the company is stable and, and supported long term, that there'll be many more opportunities where we can incorporate some more expressive ideas. And so, you know, you always, you always put, put weight on the, on the nature that there's still going to be a lot of future opportunities to do things uniquely and that you just can't try to try to do it all at once. And so sort of to borrow a cliche that we've all heard less is more, right? We've always heard that, but, but I always refer to restriction in terms of resources as a positive, because I, I reference a lot of times bands that I grew up with, whether they're punk bands or they came off the street. A lot of times the, those bands didn't know really what they were doing. They really didn't know how to read music. They didn't have a good voice, but they had some good chemistry and they had a message, right? And even though they did, only played three chords, they turned their music, they worked within their restriction, and they became ultimately hugely famous. Whether that's Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or U2, they don't know really exactly what they're doing, but they kind of hit it off by working within a really limited palette, if you will. Tell me how. So here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, Matt, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Matt, let's talk about raising capital. In the early days, did you raise capital for Forefront? And if you did, how did you go about doing that? I raised capital for Forefront. I entered into a business partnership where a lot of the capital fundraising was outlined in my partner's role. Together, we outlined a PPM, preliminary placement memorandum, which kind of detailed the DNA of the business, growth objectives, um, and then obviously an equity component. 
Um, and that was, you know, I think we issued that for a million bucks. You know, that sounded like a good round number starting up, a million bucks. And eventually we came to the conclusion that we didn't have either the right audience to pitch this, to pitch this business model to, or we didn't have enough knowledge of what we were getting into to adequately entice the financial party's interest. You know, we were talking to private equity banks for lines of credit and whatnot. So I, I eventually took on the role and raised some capital through extended family. Um, these were friends unrelated with um, high net worth. And they gave us our first seed capital. It was uh, two installments, 50 grand the first year and 50 grand the second year. So not much at all. No. And, um, you know, I went into starting the business with, you know, a handful of ski sponsors, which provided me with, you know, a lifestyle of skiing. And the less I traveled and the more I just focused on nurturing the business, the longer the money lasted, you know, but also so became the money started to run out because I wasn't competing as often as I used to be. I wasn't starring in as many movies as I had historically been working on. And so ski movies. Yeah, ski movies, just, you know, classic segments of uh, action sports. But in the end, you know, we, we starved it out. I didn't take a paycheck, which was a mistake uh, for the first five years. And, and I basically ran through anything that I was able to retain from my ski profession. I wasn't able to make up any ground on paying back the debt uh, of which was invested initially from those who gave me that initial 100K and started running up credit card bills, um, which I was during peak cash periods, able to pay off. Uh, whereas others, I just kind of carried debt and started paying a lot in interest for. So And very common. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how else you could do it. But, that, you know, that's what sharpens your teeth. You know, you really have to kind of suffer to be smart that when the when the water does get turned on, you know how to be resourceful. And if you go into a business that's just flush with cash right out of the gates, I mean, unless the business concept is just brilliant and the thing's going to get taken in 18 months or whatever of starting it, you know, you're probably going to have to go through a a, a compression. Um, I wouldn't call it a depression, but a compression because you're just going to have to take the impact as best you can. And, uh, you know, we had a, we had pretty awesome seasons when we started. Then 2009 came around and the economy deflated. Uh, a lot of our, a lot of the companies that were initially building skis who had no interest in competing in this space of which we were exclusively focused on started to realize that their space was drying out and they needed to find new markets to go after. So now we had new competition. We had a continually shrinking audience of participants, but we were getting better and better and better at what we were doing. And those who were continually seeking out new skis, who did who did want the mountain lifestyle and be recognized as a skier year-round, we were able to start really communicating with them with some amazing products. And those relationships really helped set the pace for how our company was to be perceived long-term. And that's what still exists today in our business. I mean, 15 years later, the company still operates out of the first five pages of that PPM. And do you have any key pieces of advice regarding raising capital? Lessons learned. Lessons learned. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like talking out of both sides of your mouth. I would say if you can't find someone else to invest in your business, you probably shouldn't just be the sole provider to start your business. Like it's one thing to volunteer your time and I wouldn't necessarily encourage that either. I think you should take a paycheck from day one, but I think you really, if your business is, if your business plan is sound enough, you should be able to raise capital to get it started. And it shouldn't be coming out of your pocket. 
because ultimately what you're willing to sacrifice to make that business successful is what other people are going to be buying into. And if you can't sell them on your idea, then you probably need to rethink or retool your approach in, in getting your idea off the ground. Simply, I would say take a check and don't start with your own money. You know, that's just too, I mean, I don't know if that's common or not, but that's just what I experienced starting forefront. Let's talk about finding a manufacturer. A lot of people try to launch a physical product business and they just they just have no idea how to go about doing that. How did you go about finding a manufacturer for Forefront? We started off very humbly. I mean, I, I literally went down to the Truckee Tahoe Lumber Company and bought maple to make my first pair of skis. It was cabinet grade maple that they sold in the hardwoods department of their lumber yard. Uh, I didn't know anything about vertically laminating wood cores until I eventually attracted the um, interest of a, of a snowboard manufacturer in L.A. And when I got down there, they introduced me to how they build cores. And eventually that led me to an engineer who we still work with to this day. And then once we started to realize all the different components that are designed specifically for ski and snowboard manufacturing, did we then start to look outwards to different supply houses and start to realize what materials were appropriate for the type of products we wanted to use. So just like going into the market when it was oversaturated and, and, and participations was dwindling, so did we come into manufacturing without any clue as to really how to source any of the components. But eventually, once we, once we proved to ourselves we could make a ski, which you know, was really just show, proving to ourselves that we could do it, we, we took the idea and started researching who else is in the manufacturing space. And we found some nearby factories in, in, in Los Angeles, which was an eight-hour drive from Tahoe. And, uh, and once we kind of tapped into those manufacturing uh, facilities, did we start to realize all the different contributing components and this different suppliers, which we need to start nurturing relationships with, and then looking outwards to say, is this the best factory? What other factory opportunities were there? I mean, we, we didn't have any volume. So to like take the idea off paper and try to attract a factory like we have today in Europe with just a business plan, they would say no way. Or if they took us on, they would just bury us in, in, in fees associated with being far below the minimum order quantity and ultimately just charging us setups that we couldn't afford. So we had to find a way to do it ourselves in a limited capacity that we could eventually grow out of. And then one factory after another, we were slowly able to ratchet up our volume to eventually attract the interest of far more sophisticated and capable factories overseas to take on our brand. And at that point, we were able to then shift our energy away from manufacturing and put it back onto brand building and preserving that kind of the authentic nature of being a rider-owned ski company, what was then becoming a copied business model. I want to step back a little bit. When you talked about raising capital, you said you're you and your business partner sort of started off doing that. How did you find your business partner? And how difficult was it to decide on that as your that person as your business partner? That's got to be tricky. Did it happen organically or did you seek out somebody specific? I've had two business partners now. I'm no longer affiliated with the first business partner. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily out of disinterest. It's just the nature of two people growing apart over time really proved to be the fatality to that relationship. But, you know, this was just somebody who I had met through skiing and eventually um, we started networking on an unrelated project that I had some insight as to how to help guide in the development of that project. And, and then as I was developing my own project, I started asking questions about topics that I wasn't really sure of. And eventually it was clear that my idea forefront was a, a stronger, more 
daring yet rewarding endeavor than was the one which he was working on. So we decided to go in on forefront together. And for the initial seven years, we worked together on the business. Eventually, I bought him out. And then just just this last summer, I entered into a new business partnership, uh, again, with someone who I met skiing, which possesses a skill set related to a, a field of business, which I have really no experience in, but I know will be a future, a future growth opportunity for the company long term. What is that expertise that he or she brings? E-commerce. Yeah, this individual has been successful in building online internet businesses. Let's get personal. So Matt, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is frankly pretty unusual. What motivates a person like you, Matt Sturbins, to stop just talking about launching a business like most people and then actually go out and start a business like Forefront? I mean, that's crazy. Well, with respect to my role in skiing, I wanted to create a long-lasting impact on the sport that has given me so much joy throughout my lifetime already. And recognizing that the discipline that I was focusing on was a young man's game and that I was eventually going to age out be it physically or just mentally. And so the brand was built to act as a, as, a, as a savior to my role within the ski industry. And I knew that if I could keep my passions close to my profession, that I would always be happy doing whatever it was I chose. And so that was really the, my MO. With but that's pretty, that's pretty thoughtful. So are you saying even early on, was it instinctive or were you pretty deliberate about that? I mean, I think a lot of actors towards the later part of their acting career, they get into executive producers to keep their feet in Hollywood and that sort of thing. Were you that deliberate about it early on? I was. And the reason being is that unlike a lot of the people, a lot of the skiers that I was competing against, I was typically a little further along either by age or by intellect because I chose to go to college right out of high school. Well, let me rephrase that. My parents demanded that I go to college right out of high school. And I knew that I, I was I was smart enough then to realize that if I had my family's support to go to school that it wouldn't be that big of a financial burden to do so. So I took that opportunity. And by the time I got out to compete full-time in skiing, I was already 21 years old. And a lot of the people which I was skiing against weren't even of drinking age yet. So I knew that I was already on the kind of outer edge of this movement, which was rapidly developing and becoming kind of a thing. So the timing was right, but I had a little bit more wisdom than my peers. So I spent more time analyzing what it was we were doing, probably more so than some of the people I was competing with. Like they were just kind of like, how can I win the next contest? And I was like, yeah, how do I win the next contest? But how do I ensure that like it's not my last contest? And I think that's what ultimately inspired me to want to start Forefront at the tender age of 23. <laughs> uh, do you think it's crazy? It is crazy. Do you think it was your destiny to start a business, whether it was Forefront or not? Was it my destiny to start Forefront? I feel like I learned early on that I didn't fare well being told what to do when I was insistent to do it my way. So I spent a lot of time doing general trade work growing up, carpentry, stuff like that. 
And there's a lot of different ways that you can frame a house. And the end result is typically the same. It's just the path you chose to get to that point. And I was often being forced to do things under discipline and instruction of a superior. And I oftentimes felt that that was very limiting to my potential. So if at all this has anything to do with destiny, then absolutely. Because I knew I needed to be in a position where I could put everything that I thought about and everything that I was excited about into fruition. And that inspires me. Like, I don't call forefront work. It's, this isn't a job by any means. This is, uh, I feel almost like it's a calling um, to my passion as a skier to, again, contribute, give back, and continue to nurture future generations in our sport with adequately guided product and inspiration for becoming more for who they are as a skier. So I guess it was a destiny in the sake that I was going to own my own company. And it just became so that I connected with skiing at such a young age and became so passionate about it that naturally I needed to have a job in the ski business. After being in the business for 14, 15 years, did your success with Forefront surprise you? It doesn't because I want more. Um, And that just comes from being genetically engineered as a competitor. Uh, I always want more of myself for myself. I sometimes sit back and think about it and it's humbling. Those moments, there's no science to those moments. Uh, I wish there was. I wish I could anticipate those moments, but they just, they hit you like deja vu. I swear. I don't know what it is, but there's a, the littlest thing can happen and you'll just go, you'll just sit back and go, wow, that was, this is awesome. That's worth it right there. Just whatever that was, that makes all this worth it. All that hardship, all those long hours, all those sacrifices, it, it's all worth it because of what just happened right there. And those moments are so sporadic. And, you know, as long as they continue to reoccur, man, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to the project, you know. And you mentioned your success did not surprise you because you sort of wanted more. And I'm wondering about the more. Do you see Forefront as the vehicle 100% to the more? Or do you, because you're older now and are exposed to a lot more things in life and business, is the more going to be a different vehicle at some point? It very well could be. Uh, I'm not wholly invested in Forefront being the only business of which I will be starting or, or running for the rest of my life. I, I know that there's other opportunities. I often mentor younger entrepreneurs who are starting on their path and try to give them some of the guiding steps like we are right now as to how to be flexible and adaptable in the early stages when you just can't control certain things. So I, I do want that experience yet again for myself and it's gonna be exciting. It's kind of like you know revisiting college when you're older like how much more you would probably get out of it if you now like weren't just coming right in out of high school but that like you had whatever 15 years of running your own business and then you go back to school like what a totally different experience that would be and I'm and and hopefully just as inspirational and influential as it was the first time just in a different way so so time will tell yeah I guess it's just yeah time will tell you know it's uh but you have nothing specific in mind at this point. No, no, nothing right now. I, I still have a lot more to accomplish with Forefront before I'm satisfied with where we've gotten. And I'm not sure the satisfying component will ever, ever be truly met. But I continue to describe my thoughts and my goals and continue to outline like a three-year 
a three-year projection every year. I kind of add another year to it, and sometimes I have to draft a fresh three years from what just happened the year ago. But um, you know, most of the time, it's just continuing to update the plan and staying, you know, poised on the on the on the target, which is, you know, just better days on the hill and 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 meet new people and continuing to exceed our consumer expectations. What has been your biggest joy along your entrepreneurial journey, or maybe what are you most proud of? I'm, I am most proud of the fact that we were able to build a ski out of our humble little ski factory here, which is a, a glorified prototype laboratory. And we built a ski, and within five weeks, it won the X Games. It went on to win three consecutive X Games and then eventually the Olympics. To be able to walk around the halls at trade shows internationally, where my former sponsor is probably exhibiting, as well as many of the other um, major brands, to have those gold medals clanging around our neck, walking through the halls, is extremely prideful and something that I will forever cherish uh, in my entrepreneurial experience. And and what I ultimately take the most value away from in, in what I do today is when I have the opportunity to, to, to jump on a chairlift with someone of who has no under, has no idea of who I am and that they are also on forefront skis as am I and I ask them how they enjoy, how they like their skis and they tell me that they're the best skis they've ever had and that they've never had more fun hmm. and when those moments occur it's all it's all good and uh, that's the biggest reward I could ever ask for it's greater than any paycheck and it, it rivals winning the olympics it's great isn't it it's unbelievable how has starting your own business changed you as a person, if at all? Oh, it's, it's made me very confident. When you have to sell everything it is about your business to other people in small and large audience form, you really have to become a believer of who it is you are and what it is you're trying to accomplish. And mastering that elevator pitch and performing it on demand in front of anyone at any time just forces you by nature to just kind of throw your shoulders back and pick your eyes up off the ground. You know, you, you really look around a lot more when you have the certainty that is what you're doing is exactly what you should be doing. Hmm. And so I take a lot of confidence away from doing what I do. What have you learned most about yourself since starting Forefront? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of flaws. Oh, man. Um, your employees remind you of your flaws. That's for sure. I think what I've learned the most is that I don't know as much as I think I know. And uh, when I have an opportunity to network with other business owners, I just kick back and, and relish in their stories and their experiences that they share with me. Because while they're all connected, they're also all so unique that the stresses of which we all share in running small businesses those, those problems can be solved in so many ways. And there's some people who are so brilliant at problem solving that I know I have a lot more to learn. And I'm, I'm just grateful that the little bit that I do know has allowed me to get to where I am so far. Who's been most influential to you in your entrepreneurial career or your life for that matter? Most influential? I would say that my father has been the most influential person in my life till now. He raised me very sternly. He was very prideful of his accomplishments and was always very deliberate with the notion that you can play just as hard as you're willing to work. 
And uh, we don't have an exceptionally strong relationship, but I've admired him for his work ethics and the morals of which he raised me under. And I continue to implement that type of morality within everything it is that I do in the workplace as well as at home. And I think he guides me probably the most in terms of my general being. And with respect to inspiration, you know, I, 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 I can't pinpoint any one person, but I take a lot of inspiration from other athletes who choose to go into business to progress the sport of which they contributed to. And this can be professional skateboarders. This can be other professional skiers and snowboarders, motocrossers, just people that are into action sports like I am who have outlived their career as an athlete and have now taken on a role in building a brand that just makes whatever it was that they were involved in better for the next generation. And I find a lot of value in following those types of people. And I'm sure you've met guys like Laird Hamilton and Tony Hawk and it's uh, Travis Pastrana. Yeah. No, these guys are extremely influential to the future generation. And it's been a privilege to meet uh, some of them as, as, as well as others that are doing amazing things for us in, in sports. Finally, Matthew, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing bits of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? I think the questions have been great. Uh, there's a lot of meat on that bone. You know, you can take in a lot of different uh, perspectives from what people say. And, you know, I would say to an audience of aspiring entrepreneurs that, you know, the reality is that the first business you start may very well likely not be a successful one, but the the process in starting that business will teach you things that without attempting to start a business, you could never learn. And if you stick to it and continue to try, that you will be successful because you will have developed a skill set that cannot fail. And for anyone out there who's aspiring to start a business, the time to do that is now. Matt, you've been a fantastic guest offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage and sharing your experiences. This has been great. Thanks. Thanks for having me, John. This has been a treat. Thank you. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business. 